installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquic. Today I'll be interviewing Joan Sangster about her book, Demanding Equality, 100 Years of Canadian Feminism, published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2021. Joan Sangster is Vanier Professor Emeritus at Trent University and past president of the Canadian Historical Association. She has written countless articles about working women in the labor movement, the history of the left, feminist theory and historiography, the criminalization of women and girls, and Aboriginal women in the law. She is the author of several influential books, including 100 Years of Struggle, The History of Women in the Vote and Canada, Transforming Labor, Women and Work in Post-War Canada, and the Iconic North, Cultural Constructions of Aboriginal Life in Post-War Canada. A Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, she has held a Killam Fellowship, as well as visiting professorships at Duke, Princeton, and McGill Universities. A recipient of both Trent's Simons Teaching Award and the University Research Award, she was a past director of the Frost Centre for Canadian Studies and Indigenous Studies, where she taught in the MA and Doctoral Canadian Studies program. Joan, thanks so much for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. This is an ambitious book. You weave together various expressions of women's activisms in Canada over a hundred year period. What motivated you to take on a book of this size and scope? I think I came to the book in part through my teaching. For many years, I'd been teaching women's studies and women's history, uh, particularly Canadian women's history, which I loved teaching. And there were books that offered an overview of women and gender relations in Canada, but there was nothing that really zeroed in on the history of feminism in Canada. And that's partly because uh, although there's been decades of wonderful research in this area, a lot of us, and I include myself here, tended to do more focused studies on a movement or a region or a political idea and so on. And we hadn't really tied it all together. So I thought the time was right to try and tie something all together. And also, I kind of hoped that a new book would dispel some of the stubborn terminology and problems in the history, such as the common use of the word first and second wave, which, um, as you know, my book really challenges as a, as a way of looking at feminism. Um, and I also felt like feminism was quite narrowly defined so that it actually defined women, a lot of women in Canada, out of the story. So if we broaden the definition and we challenge the idea of waves, I thought we'd be able to provide something new um, to the history of feminism. In the introduction to Demanding Equality, you tackle the definition of feminism, and you address the difficult question of whether we can apply a feminist label to women in the past, even when they wouldn't identify as such. Can you tell us your definition of feminism and how it applies to women in the past? I think I defined it as a an attempt to secure equality, autonomy, and dignity as um, something that was a movement, an idea, organizations, uh, a culture. Many of those things all rolled together that challenged or hoped to alter women's subordination. But the problem that you raise about applying a feminist label to women in the past is a very real one because many women never use that word. Uh, it is, in fact, a very historically specific word. Um, it's a more modern word. It's a word that even people who I think were feminists didn't want to embrace because it had came with it a kind of baggage of connotation. Uh, so, for example, working class women didn't like to use that word often because to them it was equated with a middle-class bourgeois women's movement, which they didn't identify with. 
So to be sure the word is problematic, but I think what we can do is redefine it in a much more broad way to take in more women's movements for social justice that really should be looked at, that should be validated, that should be put in the kind of historical canon. And part of that thinking was that those words, equality, autonomy, dignity, um, should not just be seen in a liberal individualist way. Because for many women, those things were collective ideals that couldn't be separated from their own community's search for social justice. Whether or not we're talking about African Canadian women, Indigenous women, working class women, they often saw gender equality as absolutely connected to other struggles against exploitation or colonialism or racism, for example. So in the end, I tried to say that feminism was a much broader thing and it was very uh, polyphonic. It had many voices. Uh, it was hybrid often. Women, you know, were socialist feminists or they were anti-colonial feminists or uh, pacifists that became feminists. Um, you have to kind of take into account, I guess, the complexity of feminism and the way it was linked to other movements to really get a more comprehensive picture, I think, of feminism in Canada. And that applies, of course, internationally as well. In the first chapter, you write, and I'll, I'll quote, the right to read was a pathway to feminism. How did literary societies and journalism play a pivotal role in the origins of feminism in Canada? I think I said in the beginning there was the word, and print culture was just so important to spreading feminist ideas, and it also reflected the kind of intellectual diversity of feminism, the very different communities that were exploring ideas about equality uh, from the 19th century on. Um, and it was so important in part because we live in a very geographically vast country, but also because women, it was very hard for women to go to meetings, to set up organizations. Um, they could communicate by letter, which was often a very individual thing. But print culture became a way for women to connect to each other from the privacy of their home to feeling that they shared certain ideas or they shared certain problems. So it really connected the individual uh, to the collective. And for some women, um, it provided a kind of bridge away from isolation with their ideas. And it this really began in the 19th century um, and continued into the 20th century. Some of the first um, Examples of this, actually, I would say the first example is Marianne Shedd Carey, who wrote for an anti-slavery abolitionist paper that she edited, uh, The Provincial Freeman, but she integrated questions about women's equality and education and the vote into that paper. It was really, she was ahead of her time and quite pathbreaking. But that theme is picked up later by both women who wrote for newspapers and magazines and had a women's column and for women who set up their own little newspapers and magazines to promote new ideas about feminism. And again, this took on all kinds of different complexions. But for example, for uh, Quebec women, just the right to read what they wanted was actually quite important. So you have some of the first uh, feminists like Eva Sarkote, who, who is arguing um, first of all, she says she's not a feminist, <laughs> she's a humanist, but she's arguing that women should be able to read whatever they want, including Enlightenment philosophers who the church absolutely looked down on. So the right to read, the right to think, um, the right to be intellectually active was extremely important to her and to many other women who took up um, writing novels. Uh, writing short stories often, and especially journalism, because journalism, you know, reached so many women, sometimes through mainstream newspapers that had women's columns, and sometimes through farm newspapers in the prairies, where they had a woman's column that became quite feminist um, at the turn of the century, uh, towards World War I. And the same is true for socialist women's papers. Uh, CCF papers that had a woman's column. 
I mean, the list really goes on and on. You can't really underestimate how important print was to spreading the word and encouraging dialogue too, because women often wrote letters to these uh, editors and to these newspapers, and there was a kind of back and forth um, about women's issues that tells us a lot about what women were thinking at the time. And, you know, this connected to the fact that women were intellectually connecting with a whole new literature about socialism, gender, equality, you know, reading international things like Mary Wollstonecraft or John Stuart Mill or Karl Marx, um, and bringing these new ideas to bear on their own movements in Canada. So it was extremely important, print journalism and print in general. The history of feminism and socialism is intertwined. What are some of the influences on women's thinking in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, I'm glad you asked this question because I think too often in a kind of popular view, the women's movement is described as simply middle class. Um, and the assumption is it has a very liberal individual rights connotation as well. And yet the history would say otherwise. Starting in the 19th century, uh, labor parties, labor papers, and socialist parties were often some of the very first places where equality, uh, feminism, and certainly suffrage got discussed. Um, and they, they, a lot of socialists believe this was very much a part of their tradition. This was, this was a part of their intellectual tradition that um, women's emancipation was central to socialism. Now, it's true that there was also a lot of debate in these parties and papers about whether or not things like the vote were important or whether or not class issues were more important. Um, there were some opponents in the suffrage, in the socialist movement to making this a priority, but there was always debate in these areas. And they often made the vote, for example, part of what their Labour Party, for example, stood for. So from the very beginning in the late 19th century, the early 20th century, the socialist tradition encouraged discussions about women's emancipation. And as that developed, there were socialist feminists who saw that feminism and socialism were so closely intertwined they couldn't be separated. And it's important to stress that these women existed before World War One, we're not talking about the 1960s or 70s. Um, a journalist in British Columbia, Bertha Merrill Burns, argued this very, very strongly in her organizing and writing that you couldn't really have socialism unless you had the emancipation of women. And you couldn't have the emancipation of women in a capitalist society. So you needed socialism. So these women were arguing for the interconnectedness of those two movements and the necessity of looking at also of looking at working class women's actual lives, what they needed, um, what their issues were, rather than simply middle class women's lives. And that tradition just, I think, became a continuing stream within the history of feminism. And despite the fact some people think think that things kind of fell apart after many women got the vote at the end of World War I. In fact, the socialist feminist tradition got stronger. It took on different um, permutations. There was on the left, a communist women's movement. There were uh, socialist and social democratic women who were distinct from that. Um, so they actually, in some ways, became stronger um, in the 1920s and 30s than they had been before. They often linked up with uh, the peace movement, an anti-imperialist movement, and it continued on really until the 1960s and 70s and after, and still exists today, of course, as a stream within feminism that started from the premise that both socialism and feminist liberation or feminist um, emancipation were inextricably connected. It is a very interesting, strong tradition, I think, and particularly strong in Canada, maybe compared to the U.S., although I hate generalizations like that. Um, I do think the presence of a social democratic party here, the CCF, helped to um, 
buttress that that tradition. The First World War played a key role in the history of women's suffrage in Canada. What were some of the key factors leading to enfranchisement, and how did the war effort move the women's movement forward? I think the First World War is a fascinating um, topic because on, on the one hand, it creates a rupture for the women's movement that leads to new thinking, new organizing. But on the other hand, it was one of the most divisive things uh, for the women's movement up to that point, and probably the most divisive thing uh, up until that point, because women disagreed quite strongly on the nature of the war, on pacifism, on conscription, and even ultimately on suffrage as well. Um, I think part of what happened about the First World War was that in its aftermath, one current of feminism tended to stress that they had secured the vote, or as some people put it, they were granted the vote as if it was some kind of gift, um, in reward for their war service and their loyalty. And yet the evidence doesn't really quite support that. For one thing, women didn't move into uh, so-called male jobs here the same way they did in the UK. There wasn't a massive substitution of women for men in the Canadian war effort. Um, and in fact, there were many women's, there were many reasons, sorry, why women secured the vote. Uh, the first province, of course, was Manitoba in 1916. But in that case, women had uh, hitched their wagons in some ways to the Liberal Party, which had which was supporting suffrage. And when they got elected, they made good on their their promise, followed by the other prairie provinces. But some provinces didn't enfranchise women till the 1920s, uh, and certainly provincially in Quebec, not till 1940. So it was not all linked to the war movement. And finally, I think you have to take into account the fact that there was so much uh, disagreement about the nature of suffrage during the war that it actually exposed um, the differences within feminism, including on the very question of what democracy looked like. So uh, this is a complicated history, of course, but uh, when... Uh, Borden's government passed the Wartime Elections Act in 1917 to buttress conscription and, frankly, to make sure they were re-elected. They instituted a bill which was a gerrymandering of the vote by giving women who had relatives serving overseas the vote and actually disenfranchising, and I mean taking the vote away from a number of groups, including people who were naturalized after 1902. In other words, immigrants, especially uh, immigrants on the prairies, where they were very numerous, especially, of course, immigrants who fell within the so-called enemy lines, like the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Well, that, that took in many, many immigrants to the West. So it was an ethnocentric um, piece of legislation, very complex piece of legislation, but it really ripped the women's movement apart because it raised an absolutely fundamental question, which is, what is democracy? Do we have a universalist understanding in which every citizen has a vote? And do we reject other legislation, which only gives you half, half of this? Or is democracy contingent on whether or not you're loyal to the British Empire, on whether or not you support the war, on whether or not you speak English, on you know, whether or not you're Anglo-Saxon in background? I mean, and um, it was quite a difficult situation because some you know, women who supported this act were literally referring to other women who didn't as traitors. So I can't tell you how awful this legislation was, what a disgrace it was, and how much it actually created a, a division. And so if you're thinking about what the war did, it in some ways created rationale for extending the vote, but it wasn't necessarily the cause of women getting the vote. And just to end on this, there was a prairie suffragist who said, you know, what have we forgotten all the years and years of hard work and drudgery, lobbying and writing things and meeting with politicians? We weren't just suddenly given the vote. We actually worked and organized for it. 
So it was the product, too, of all those years of organizing. The book does a wonderful job presenting the history of feminism in Canada as pluralistic. Countless women's organizations and individuals all played a role in moving women's rights forward. I found the business and professional women's clubs particularly fascinating. Could you explain how this group fits into the story of Canadian feminism? I think the business and professional women's clubs are a very interesting example of the fact that feminism did not suddenly disappear in the interwar period. There was not a trough, in other words. Um, it was one of a number of streams of feminism in that period. Uh, it vied uh, with other feminisms for, um, I suppose, its ideological um, uh, validity. But it was one stream that carried on the reformist sort of liberal feminist tradition that existed within the suffrage movement. And it shifted in some ways the view from political rights to economic rights. Um, and many of these women, of course, didn't think about the fact that the vote was still very discriminatory and that, you know, some women still did not have the vote because uh, of their race, um, because the Dominion Voting Act did discriminate based on race. But they were interested in taking what they saw as their newfound political rights and trying to extend them into some economic rights or at least economic validation, economic dignity. Because the women who joined these clubs were largely professional, but also white collar women, women who worked in banks and um, clerical jobs and so on. And at the local level, they tended to be a little bit more apolitical. They were interested in making connections, a kind of sisterhood of other working women where they could, you know, um, have recreational and social activities together. But as you climbed the organization's ladder, those at the top were actually quite interested in lobbying for a number of key economic issues. Uh, equal pay was one. Uh, appointing women to the Senate and to commissions and boards was another. Um, and during the Depression, a third thing that they began to talk about was women's right to work. This was an issue that actually crossed a lot of political lines because a lot of socialist women were also very concerned about the Depression and the way in which it elicited calls for women to be pushed out of the workforce particularly working wives who were often portrayed as working, you know, not because they needed to, but for luxuries and extras, of course. Um, and for the business and professional women's clubs, this was, first of all, it was a dicey issue even within the clubs because some people actually did agree that uh, wives should quit their jobs. But certainly at the leadership level, there was a lot of effort to make this an issue and try to show that women worked for the same reason men did. They supported themselves and they supported families and that taking their jobs away would not only not solve unemployment, um, and it wouldn't have because women generally worked in different jobs, um, but it really went against a kind of equal rights um, that they very much believed in. So they were very interested in these sort of economic issues. At the same time, as they were quite conservative in some ways, they were, you know, a very white kind of middle class, lower middle class organization that, you know, took the British Empire for granted, unlike some other feminists of the period who began to criticize it. But I think it did show that women were starting to want to validate their role in the workforce and were tired of being told that they were unimportant workers, secondary workers, that their earnings and their jobs didn't matter when they knew they did matter very much, not only to supporting themselves, but often to supporting families too. You introduce us to dozens of fascinating women activists and politicians in the book. Could you tell us about the contributions made by Flora McDonald Dennison and Helena Gutteridge? I'm very happy that uh, people are starting to turn their attention to a variety of suffragists, including Flora McDonald Dennison, because in the past we've paid attention to one or two and we've assumed they're national leaders when in fact they weren't at all, partly because the suffrage movement was so very provincial, provincially based, 
uh, regionally based, linguistically based as well. Um, but people like Flora MacDonald Dennison, I think, give you a slightly different view of the suffrage movement because she was um, something of an anomaly. Um, she was a self-supporting woman, a journalist, a dressmaker um, who supported herself, who had a somewhat unconventional life in terms of marriage. And this, in fact, made her the target of um, the more affluent feminist disdain because she was not, they thought, as respectable as she was. Um, it also meant that her view on the world was different. She tended to be more sympathetic to working women. She supported the idea of women of women joining unions, which some middle class feminists had no use for. Um, and she was quite interested in um, ideas about democracy. She was a great follower of the American poet Walt Whitman. And in fact, in fact, at the resort that she ran near Bon Echo, um, she had a kind of Walt Whitman um, society that met. Um, talked about poetry, progressive ideas, likely had seances and so on. Um, and she wanted democracy to be a fundamental concept in feminism, democracy in personal relations and social relations, as well as, as well as politically. So she was somewhat more radical in some ways than other feminists, at the same time as she often used some of the same arguments about maternalism and women's special maternal understanding of social issues. And unlike a lot of other feminists, she was very concerned with maintaining international ties. She self-funded her trips to international suffrage uh, conventions so that she could meet uh, other suffragists, other politicians and and talk to them about what was going on in the world. So she was a bit more avant-garde. She was a bit more radical, sometimes quite conservative too. Um, she was just an interesting mix of ideas. And I think it's quite tragic that she died quite young right after the war, because um, it would have been interesting to see what she developed into, you know, where her politics took her in later years. Um, unfortunately, we don't, we don't know that, but um, I'm glad people are paying more attention to her now. I think there was a, a Toronto Star article about her, actually, and it, it's giving some more visibility to the intellectual diversity of the suffrage movement rather than concentrating on some of the well-known stories. Uh, something that I have to add, I think the suffrage series that UBC Press has published has done as well. It's really created a very different view of the suffrage movement from an earlier one. The second woman, um, Helena Guthridge is, is also, I think, fascinating. She was an immigrant, a British immigrant, uh, at a time in which British immigration was very high. She came as an adult, already uh, a worker from the tailoring trade in London. So she brought with her knowledge about unions, sympathy for unions, but also some uh, sympathy for suffrage because uh, she'd been exposed to the suffrage movement in, in the UK. And when she moved to Vancouver, she immediately became involved in a number of movements, the labor movement, um, and she had a column actually in the BC Federationist, which was a labor uh, paper, the suffrage movement. Um, and actually, when the war began, she was quite critical of the war as well. So you see all those threads connecting with her. And unlike some other women, she could be extremely outspoken about movements that she absolutely supported, but she didn't think were good enough. So, for example, um, she was absolutely a supporter of the labor movement, but she was quite critical of some male trade unionists who she did not feel supported exploited women well enough. She did not feel embraced women and brought them into unions. Um, and with the women's movement, she was very committed to suffrage and joined the large mainstream suffrage organization, but she also really thought that they did not address the lives of working class women. So she and some other women created their own working class women's suffrage league which addressed working class women's needs. 
which met at night at the labor temple, which a lot of middle-class women didn't want to do, which allowed women to bring their children to meetings, which addressed the kind of daily material needs of working-class women. So she had her foot in a lot of different camps, uh, reflecting, I think, that way in which different ideas became a kind of hybrid feminism. And she was somebody who continued on after the suffrage movement. She went in and out of the movement. Um, at one point, she kind of left when she went to uh, run a farm. But then she came back in the 1930s and uh, became involved in the CCF. And as a CCF person, again, you see that uh, multiplicity of concerns. She was very vocal about the unemployment issue, um, but also still about gender equality. And I think one thing that sums this up very well is that when she became an alderman in Vancouver, in fact, the first woman alderman, she, um, she brought up the whole issue of municipal suffrage, which in some ways lagged way behind other, um, other provincial and federal suffrage laws because it was still so property-based. So municipally, a lot of women could not vote because they were boarders. They didn't own property. Or even if their family owned a house, it wasn't in their name. They didn't own property. And in Vancouver, people of Asian descent were also not allowed to vote. So she went to City Hall and she said, first of all, people should be able to run for council without any property. And second of all, everybody in the city should vote after a certain amount of residency. Well, this was seen as, oh, no, revolutionary, no, too radical by all the other city councillors because it really upset the property apple cart, right? And the idea that property gave you the right to vote. But here was Gutteridge many years after suffrage still with a kind of democratic idea in mind of uh, that went beyond gender, that took in class and also race as well. So, um, again, I'm really glad to see that people like her are getting more attention. In fact, there's been, I think, a square named after her in Vancouver. So in terms of public memorials, we're catching up a bit with some of these suffragists and feminists who are not as well known. And it's a, it's, it gives us a different view of the women's movement to include them, I think. You write that the period after World War II was a time of incremental change with potentially radical consequences. How did the Cold War influence women's activism and organizing? I think there's two interesting questions there. One is about the Cold War and one is about that incremental change, which, by the way, is a quote from Alice Kessler-Harris. I always really liked the way she described that period. So you have an immense contradiction. On the one hand, you have a Cold War, which is a witch hunt, a real one, not like the one Donald Trump talks about, um, in which uh, conformity and uh, hostility to left-wing ideas, um, the exaltation of the male-headed heterosexual family are all part of this Cold War ideology. And it really was a period of uh, repression conformity, and persecution of people who were either communists or talk too much like communists, either communists or who wouldn't denounce communists like uh, Quebec trade unionist Madeleine Parent, who was caught up in this witch hunt simply because she refused to denounce fellow trade union communists. And so there was a very conservatizing uh, aspect to the Cold War, which was um, you know, put a damper in many ways on ideas about equality and made people afraid about speaking up. Um, it was a very uh, nasty, dark period in one sense. On the other hand, one could say that the Cold War, because of the nuclear component of it, also gave birth to a women's peace movement, which increasingly became more outspoken, uh, was not anti-communist. Um, and evolved into feminist voices. So you think of the voice of women, which was set up in the 1960s as a women's peace movement and very much centered on this idea of maternalism and, and uh, tried to be sort of nonpartisan and so on. Uh, but it mobilized around 
uh, nuclear weapons, around questions of peace. And by the by the late 1960s, and by the time they testified to the Royal Commission, they were a much more feminist uh, group. So the Cold War was quite contradictory, although I would say overall it's a pretty negative period. But at the same time as you had this Cold War, you had these incremental changes I talked about in, in a few areas, certainly work, education, and discussion of human rights. So it's a kind of truism, but from the 1930s to the 1960s, the uh, female workforce went from being working daughters to working mothers. The increased number of women in the workforce in the post-World War II period was incredibly important. And it's true that before that time, many racialized and working class women who were married and had children worked because that was the only way you could make ends meet. But it increasingly became true after 1945, despite the fact that women were encouraged to go back to the home, that more women were going out to work. They had to. They were being drawn into the workforce, but to support the family economy, they also had to go out to work. And that was quite a significant change in society to have more and more women working for pay. The second change had to do, I think, with education, and that there's a there's sort of a limited democratization of a higher education that happens. Um, previously, you know, to go to university was really quite an elite thing. I mean, unless you were a scholarship student, uh, it was it was a very small group that went to university. But in the 1950s and especially the 60s, you find an expansion of uh, people graduating from high school, an expansion of higher education. And because of student loans and student grants and so on, you have people going to university also who are not just middle class. They're also working class. They're second generation immigrant families. And they're bringing those perspectives with them at the same time as they're encountering incredibly radical ideas in the university. So you have that also changing in the post-war period. And finally, I think that um, there is a new discussion of human rights that begins to happen after World War II. There's a lot of debate about how, how extensive that discussion is, but I think it also becomes a discussion that a number of women um, connect to, particularly, for example, African-Canadian women who, since the 30s, have been talking about discrimination in the job market um, and things like the fact that their daughters could not go to nursing school because they were barred from this. Um, but I think the human rights uh, discussion also augmented their discussion in the 1950s and 60s about uh, racism about discrimination. And there are women who become quite vocal about this, uh, who are organizing around it, like Carrie Best in Nova Scotia, uh, Perlene Oliver in Nova Scotia, is an extremely interesting woman who took on the question of nursing, who took on the uh, education and tried to get books like Little Black Sambo out of the school curriculum, who took on questions of work discrimination. And actually found some allies, for example, in the voice of women. So that human rights discussion is also being uh, important, I think, in, in the terms of uh, the voices of a number of women who for many years have said that gender discrimination cannot be separated from racism that they experience in their lives. So it was in some ways a conservative period, but then kind of exploded, right? Now, one of the milestones in the history of Canadian feminism is the Royal Commission on the Status of Women, which reported in 1970. In your opinion, how was this commission significant? The Royal Commission on the Status of Women, I think, is important because of the conversation it started. Um, and I would say as a historian, this is a terrible thing to say, but wow, what a incredible treasure trove of documents that it left us about people's ideas at the time. Um, and it's coming for a lot of justifiable criticism because many people argue that it tended to reflect the experiences of Francophone and Anglophone women um, of uh, 
more middle-class women, although I think that's a little bit debatable, given that Grace Hartman from CUPE, who was a very strong feminist, was um, involved in pressuring for it. And many working-class women also testified before it. But it did have, it did reflect in some ways certain assumptions about a white uh, feminism, about Canada that was going to be largely English and French speaking. Uh, it did not reflect, you know, Canada as it evolved in the 1970s. And in some ways, as soon as the report came out, it was dated because for example, it never addressed violence against women, which seems pretty astounding to us now. But uh, by the time it came out in 1970, women were setting up shelters for what they call battered wives or abused women at the time. So, you know, events were already overtaking it as soon as the report came out. Uh, but it did provide a novel opportunity for women, some women, to voice their unhappiness. And again, I would say it was a very selected group of women in some ways. But if we only look at the report, I think we get a pretty dry and um, liberal view of feminism. If we look at the testimony and we look at the letters women sent in, and if we look at the testimony, for example, in the North that was considered quite marginal because they were Indigenous women, but they were Indigenous women speaking back to colonialism, then we get a slightly different view of the Royal Commission. And I think the, the tragedy is that really we have the very official report. We have um, the way it was covered in the press, which does underline how in some ways it was very cautious. It was very liberal. Uh, it had some very interesting recommendations like childcare, which you know, after all, we've only recently got a national plan after they recommended it in 1970. Um, but it did kind of spark a conversation. And, you know, there were people who sat before the commission and told them off um, and said, you're not addressing the lives of black and indigenous women. This is what Carrie Best told them. And socialist women who said, sorry, but your solutions of more women in the corridors of power is not going to get us anywhere. So it did also elicit these voices of opposition, I think, which we need to take into account if we look at the whole history of the commission rather than its rather narrow report and its, its, its limitations, which are clearly, they're clearly there. But um, there is another history lurking below, I think, in terms of the Royal Commission. And I, here I'm really glad people are writing more about the letters that women wrote, for example, because um, these were women's you know, voices from the grassroots that were talking about what really upset them about the working world, for example. And, and those are voices that really enrich women's history. Well, the 1970s were a particularly tumultuous time in the history of Canadian women. You argue that the 1970s and the women's liberation movement marked a new era in the fight for equality. How did the debate shift during this period? It's interesting because when I think about the late 1960s and early 1970s, I mean, I'm tempted to use a wave metaphor because it was as if this huge, you know, explosion, as I put earlier, this huge wave of new activism appeared. And I think that's true. There was a kind of rupture that happened in the late 1960s. On the other hand, part of what was happening continued on with streams of feminism, which had already existed, like socialist feminism pacifist feminism, working class feminism, and so on. They did take on a new form after the 1960s. And part of that is related to new ideas that were percolating uh, internationally and nationally. Uh, people were reading all kinds of new theories about women's oppression, theories that were both feminist um, and very narrowly liberal feminist or radical feminist ideas by Betty Friedan, for example, or Kate Millett, but also new efforts to join Marxism and feminism. And this was an international debate that Canadians uh, were actually quite active in. One of the key, you know, important articles on domestic labor was written by Maggie Benston, who was a feminist, and it circulated all over the world. So there was this whole new conversation about theory and where did women's oppression come from? Why was it so resilient? And at the same time, you had 
internationally a lot of social movements which were radically questioning the status quo, which were, for example, anti-imperialist or anti-colonial movements, which uh, were questioning racism, the civil rights movement, which were questioning particularly in North America. They were mobilizing around the Vietnam War and asking what that war said about society. Uh, students' movements and new left movements, which had um, you know, radically new ideas about democracy and very critical ideas about capitalism. So you had theory, you had new social movements bursting on the scene, connecting with that theory. And then you had women's own experience. And that came from many quarters, and this is what I would stress about that word women's liberation. It actually took in so many different groups. There were groups that called themselves women's liberation in North Bay or Thunder Bay that were not like Saskatchewan or not like Toronto. People used that term, but it was quite diverse what actually women did with that, that term and that idea. So women were drawing on their own experience of discrimination at work. Uh, they were connecting around questions of violence. Uh, indigenous women were addressing colonialism in a slightly different way than they had before because they had been organizing for some time. But they were creating organizations of Indigenous women which were taking on issues like the Indian Act, as well as colonialism in their own communities, uh, child welfare issues, for example. So you had a kind of multitude of streams or organizations emerging which spoke to women's experience, which reflected very different experiences, uh, which sometimes I would say existed in tension or in conflict with each other, but occasionally found common cause and political alliances as well over, over particular issues. Um, so it is a period that sometimes uh, is described by that term women's liberation, but the media image at the time claimed that women's liberation is for all a bunch of angry, you know, um, young, uh, hostile women, you know, who came under one umbrella ideologically. And actually, that's really not quite true. Uh, there were a lot of different women's movements at the time addressing different issues. And by the 1970s, you have, I think, you have the term women's liberation used a lot less, and you have uh, movements coalescing around, uh, for example, labor feminist issues. Uh, you have um, things coalescing around, particularly indigenous women, um, issues of colonialism. Um, you have women coalescing around issues of sexual orientation and what was called lesbian organizing at the time. Uh, you have all these different uh, areas of organizing, which, as I said, sometimes came together in unison and sometimes actually existed in conflict or in tension with each other, uh, critiquing each other's versions of feminism. What were some of the challenges to feminist organizing in the 1980s and 1990s? And I'd like to ask you specifically about the changing role of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women and how that organization evolved to meet these challenges. Certainly the 1980s, but by the 1990s, there was a very different social and economic context that feminists had to face. Um, it didn't mean that feminism declined, but it meant that they had some very difficult issues to deal with. And the changing political economy and neoliberalism created a very uh, different uh, context for them that led to, for example, welfare restructuring, uh, cutbacks, uh, the rise of the right, uh, renewed, invigorated uh, right-wing organizations in the 1980s that feminists believed were extremely dangerous. And actually, they believed uh, that feminists should come together with, um, for example, anti-racist organizing, uh, what was called gay and lesbian organizing at the time, LGBTQ organizing, uh, because they saw a common enemy in these new right-wing uh, 
organizations, which, which actually were quite threatening in what they were arguing. So they had to face neoliberalism on the one hand, which is arguing for a very individualist, market-oriented society. Um, they had to face the emergence of a new right by the 1980s that was challenging many aspects of, of feminism and equality ideas more generally. And they also had a very ideologically diverse women's movement with many different groups within it that was in some ways very difficult to join together in a national organization, um, which NAC was. I guess you could say that NAC in some ways was a, a legacy of the Royal Commission since the founding convention came out of this uh, conference about implementing the Royal Commission. And to begin with, it was very much a lobby educational organization. It had a kind of parliamentary activism, you know, it would lobby parliament. He would do research on questions. It was somewhat narrow in that sense. And certainly it was criticized for being far too uh, focused on a certain demographic of Canada. It was not attuned to uh, issues of racism, for example, and ethnocentrism. Um, it did encompass, I think, both working and middle-class women. There was always a lot of union women and working-class women involved. So there were debates within NAC between different kinds of feminism, but it it was not a representative organization to begin with, and it was a very long struggle uh, to make it uh, more representative, to make it address questions uh, which had been ignored originally, such as racism. And it it had to deal with some pretty difficult questions, constitutional change, for example. Um, it was trying very hard to, um, you know, be an alliance uh, that took in the Quebecois women, but uh, constitutional issues sometimes divided women. They didn't, feminists didn't always agree on how the constitution should be changed. So you had a very, uh, I think, brave but difficult uh, national organization, which did slowly change over time. And you actually had at the local level, and I think this is important, different status of women committees, which were often very focused on local issues. Um, one thing I do in the book is just take one of those in Halifax and talk about it, because I think we don't talk enough about local examples of feminism. We get caught up in these national uh, organizations, not to say the national ones aren't important, but sometimes uh, local um, feminist organizations responded to what were local issues. And, you know, in Halifax, for example, it was partly abortion access, um, uh, as well as other things as well. So I think it, it stresses again that feminism was very regionalized. Um, there were some issues that were shared across the country. You know, across the country, you find discussion about pay equity, for example. You find discussion of, about violence and how to counter it. Um, but often organizations are quite regional. And, and by the 1990s, I think there's some very fierce debates within feminism, which may have seemed difficult, but they were healthy, ultimately. Um, I mentioned NAC, I mentioned the lack of attention to issues of race and colonialism. But even on questions about violence against women, I think feminists began to see the issue very differently and uh, debate whether or not um, using the law and using incarceration was really uh, a solution to the violence that a lot of women faced. Um, and and so these, and many of these debates are ongoing, actually, what's called carceral feminism, right? The, the, the tendency to use the law and incarceration to implement feminist ideas, whether or not it's about trafficking or, or violence, is still a, a big issue, a big debate, um, with some feminists who are abolitionists saying that these, this is the wrong way to go if we really want a truly just society that takes into account class and race as well as gender. 
So in some ways, the 1980s and the 1990s, you know, introduced these ideas, perhaps introduced some generational debate as well as, you know, a group of people who call themselves third wave feminists position themselves as different than second wave feminists. Um, perhaps um, that was a bit artificial in some ways, since feminists are not just divided by generation, but by ideas, for example, and other things. But it in some ways reflected the heterogeneity and the intellectual diversity and the debates within feminism. It didn't narrow down to one homogeneous movement at all. The strength of your book, in my opinion, is that it provides a comprehensive overview of all the complexities involved in the 100 years of feminism. And this final question might be a little bit unfair, but I'd like you to, in a few sentences or phrases, explain why you think the history of feminism in Canada is important. It is a hard question, actually. I think there's a few things. I think, actually, although this may be old-fashioned, we do need a Canadian history of feminism. Um, feminism was always international and transnational ideas flowed across borders, but feminism does take on a particular national and regional and local complexion. And we have to understand what made Canadian feminism sometimes different. Um, and secondly, I know it's a, I know it's a truisms in some ways to say you have to understand your past if you want to move forward. But I think this is true as well, that if we want to create a more uh, tolerant understanding of the diversity of feminist ideas and both the failures of feminism, because there were many, and the, um, what would I say, the way in which they ignored or misunderstood issues, you have to understand that if you're going to move forward. It doesn't mean that your history is only the history of, you know, mistakes and people who didn't think like us and so on. It does mean you have to grapple with both what people thought in the context of their time, the way in which they might have been breaking barriers, but the way in which they remained limited by dominant ideas of their time, trapped, uh, repeating them, um, and limiting the kind of visions of equality they had. So I guess understanding that, um, that complex political question is something that is important if we are to think about the diversities of different feminisms today. And um, in some ways, finally, I think that it's important to look at people who really were outside the mainstream, even of feminism. <laughs> we need to think about people who dared to think in utopian ways, who even uh, were considered too radical for feminists or, you know, had ideas which didn't fit in the context of their times because um, we can't actually lose hope uh, with utopian solutions. If we do, we're going to become, I think, just um, accommodated to very limited solutions. I, one thing I argue in the book is that there were certain periods when um, cross-movement fertilization stimulated some utopian thinking um, around the time uh, before the Second World War, for example, uh, around the late 1960s and 70s, when there was a lot of feminist utopian writing. And that it's important that we keep that in mind and always think um, about possibilities rather than simply the mundane things we can achieve. Because Otherwise, we won't imagine a totally different society, which is something that feminists and socialist allies and, uh, you know, anti-colonial thinkers, all of those people who made up these movements um, believed in very strongly. Your book's a remarkable achievement and really should be on everyone's summer reading list. Joan, thanks so much for talking to us today. My guest today has been Joan Sangster. She's the author of Demanding Equality, 
100 Years of Canadian Feminism, published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We appreciate likes and shares on social media. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on March 28, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team.